Chapter Twenty Two of the Benefactress by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. The ordinary young man, German or otherwise, hungrily emerging from boyhood into a toothsome world made to be eaten, cures himself of his appetite by indulging it till he is ill, and then on a firm foundation of his own foolish corpse or, as the poet puts it, of his dead self, begins to build up the better things of his later years. Klutz was an ordinary young man, and arrived at early manhood as hungry as his fellows. But his father was a parson, his grandfather had been a parson, his uncles were all parsons, and fate coming cruelly to him in the gloomy robes of the Lutheran church, his natural follies had had no opportunity of getting out, developing, and dissolving, but remained shut up in his heart, where they amused themselves by seething uninterruptedly to his great discomfort, while the good parson, in whose care he was, talked to him of the world to come. "'The world to come,' thought Klutz, hungering and thirsting for a taste of the world in which he was, may or may not be very well in its way, but its way is not my way, and he listened in a silence that might be taken either for awed or bored to Manske's expatiations. Manske, of course, interpreted it as awed. "'Our young vicar,' he said to his wife, "'thinks much. He is serious and contemplative beyond his years. He is not a man of many and vain words.' To which his wife replied only by a sniff of scepticism. She had no direct proofs that Klutz was not serious and contemplative, but during his first winter in their house he had fallen into her bad graces because of a certain indelicately appreciative attitude he displayed towards her apple jelly. Not that she grudged him apple jelly in just quantities, both she and her husband were fond of it, and the eating of it was luckily one of those pleasures whose indulgence is innocent. But there are limits beyond which even jelly becomes vicious, and these limits Herr Klutz continually overstepped. Every autumn she made a sufficient number of pots of it to last discreet appetites a whole year. There had always been vicars in their house, and there had never been a dearth of jelly, but this year, so early as Easter, there were only two pots left. She could not conveniently lock it up and refuse to produce any, for then she and her husband would not have it themselves. So all through the winter she had watched the pots being emptied, one after the other, and the thinner the rose in her storeroom grew, the more pronounced became her conviction that Klutz's piety was but skin-deep. A young man who could behave in so unbridled a fashion could not be really serious. There was something, she thought, that smacked suspiciously of the flesh and the devil about such conduct. Great, then, was her astonishment when, the penultimate pot being placed at Easter on the table, Klutz turned from it with loathing. Nor did he ever look at apple jelly again, nor did he, of other viands, eat enough to keep himself in health. He who had been so voracious forgot his meals, and had to be coaxed before he would eat at all. He spent his spare time writing, sitting up sometimes all night and consuming candles at the same headlong rate with which he had previously consumed the jelly. And when towards May her husband once more commented on his seriousness, Frau Manske's conscience no longer permitted her to sniff. "'You must be ill,' she said to him at last, on a day when he had sat through the meals in silence, and had refused to eat at all. "'Ill? 
burst out Klutz, whose body and soul seemed both to be in one fierce blaze of fever. I am sick, sick even unto death. And he did feel sick. Only two days had elapsed since he had received Anna's poem, and had been thrown by it into a tumult of delight and triumph, for the discouragement it contained had but encouraged him the more, appearing to be merely the becoming self-depreciation of a woman before him who has been by nature appointed lord. He was perfectly ready to overlook the obstacles to their union to which she alluded. She could not help her years. They, there were, truly, more of them than he would have wished, but luckily they were not visible on that still lovely face. As to position, he hoped she meant that he was not adelig, but a man, he reflected, compared to a woman, is always adelig, whatever his name may be, by virtue of his higher and nobler nature. He had been for rushing at once to Kleinwalde, but his pupil and confidant had said, Don't, and had said it with such energy that for that day at least he had resisted. And now, the very morning of the day on which the fire pastor was asking him whether he were ill, he had received a curt note from Miss Leech, informing him that Miss Letty Estcourt would for the present discontinue her German studies. What had happened? Even the poem, lying warm on his heart, was not able to dispel his fears. He had flown at once to Kleinwalde, feeling that it was absurd not to follow the dictates of his heart, and cast himself in person at Anna's no doubt expectant feet, and the door had been shut in his face rudely shut by a coarse servant, whose manner had so much enraged him that he had almost shown her the precious verses then and there, to convince her of his importance in that house. Indeed, the only consideration that restrained him was a conviction of her ignorance of the English tongue. "'Would you like to see the doctor?' inquired Frau Manske, startled by his looks and words. Perhaps he had caught something infectious. An infectious vicar in the house would be horrible.' "'The doctor!' cried Klutz, and forthwith quoted the German rendering of the six lines beginning, "'Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased?' Frau Manske was seriously alarmed. Not aware that he was quoting, she was horrified to hear him calling her due, a privilege confined to lovers, husbands, and near relations, and asking her questions that she was sure no decent vicar would ever ask the respectable mother of a family. "'I am sure you ought to see the doctor,' she said nervously, getting up hastily and going to the door. "'No, no,' said Klutz. "'The doctor does not exist who can help me.' His hand went to the breast-pocket containing the poem, and he fingered it feverishly. He longed to show it to Frau Manske, to translate it for her, to let her see what the young Kleinwalder lady, joint patron with Herr von Lohm of her husband's living, thought of him. "'I will ask my husband about the doctor,' persisted Frau Manske, disappearing with unusual haste. If she had stayed one minute longer, he would have shown her the poem. Klutz did not wait to hear what the pastor said, but crushed his felt hat onto his head and started for a violent walk. He would go through Kleinwalde, past the house, he would haunt the woods, he would wait about. It was a hot, gusty May afternoon and the wind that had been quiet so long was blowing up the dust in clouds. But he hurried along, regardless of heat and wind and dust, with an energy surprising in one who had eaten nothing all day. Love had come to him very turbulently. He had been looking for it ever since he left school, but his watchful parents had kept him in solitary places, empty, 
uninhabited places like Loom, places where the parson's daughters were either married or were still tied on the cushions of infancy. Sometimes he had been invited, as a great condescension, to the Delvig's Sunday parties, and there, too, he had looked around for love. But the company consisted solely of stout farmers' wives, ladies of thirty, forty, fifty, of a dizzy antiquity, that is, and their talk was of butter-making and sausages, and they cared not at all for love. "'Oh, love, 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 where will I find thee?' he would cry to the stars on his way home through the forest after these evenings. But the stars twinkled coldly on, obviously profoundly indifferent as to whether he found it or not. His chest of drawers was full of the poems into which he had poured the emotions of twenty, the emotions and longings that well-fed, unoccupied twenty mistakes for soul. And then the English miss had burst upon his gaze, sitting in her carriage on that stormy March day, smiling at him from the very first, piercing his heart through and through, with eyes that many persons beside Klutz saw were lovely, and so he had found love, and for ever lost his interest in apple jelly. It was a confident, bold love, with more hopes than fears, more assurance than misgivings. The poem seemed to burn his pocket, so violently did he long to show it round, to tell every one of his good fortune. The lilies of the valley to which it had been tied, and that he wore since all day long in his coat, were hardly brown, and yet he was tired already of having such a secret to himself. What advantage was there in being told by the lady of Kleinwalder that she regretted not being able to call him Lamschen or Schatzen, the alternative renderings his dictionary gave of pet, if no one knew it? When he reached the house he walked past it at a snail's pace, staring up at the blank, repellent windows. Not a soul was to be seen. He went on discontentedly. What should he do? The door had been shut in his face once already that day. Why, he could not imagine. He hesitated and turned back. He would try again. Why not? The miss would have scolded the servant roundly when she heard that the person who dwelt in her thoughts as a lambshan had been turned away. He went boldly round the grass plot in front of the house and knocked. The same servant appeared. Instantly on seeing him, she slammed the door and called out, Nixu house! Ekelhaft has been namen! cried Klutz aloud, flaming into a sudden passion. His mind, never very strong, had grown weaker along with his body during those exciting days of love and fasting. A wave of fury swept over him as he stood before the shut door and heard the servant going away, and hardly knowing what he did, he seized the knocker and knocked and knocked till the woods rang. There was a sound of hurried footsteps on the path behind him, and turning his head, his hand still knocking, he saw Delvig running towards him. "'Nanu!' cried Delvig breathlessly, staring in blankest astonishment. "'What in the devil's name are you making this noise for? Is the parson on fire?' Klutz stared back in a dazed sort of way, his fury dying out at once in the presence of the stronger nature. Then, because he was twenty, and because he was half-starved, and because he felt he was being cruelly used there on Anna's doorstep in the full light of the evening sun, with Delvig's eyes upon him, he burst into a torrent of tears. "'Well, of all, what's wrong at Loam, you great sheep?' asked Delvig, seizing his arm and giving him a shake. 
Klutz signified by a movement of his head that nothing was wrong at Lohm. He was crying like a baby into a red pocket-handkerchief and could not speak. Delvig, still gripping his arm, stared at him a moment in silence. Then he turned him round, pushed him down the steps, and walked him off. "'Come along, young man,' he said. "'I want some explanation of this. If you are mad, you'll be locked up. We don't fancy madmen about our place. And if you're not mad, you'll be fined by the Armsforsteer for disorderly conduct. Knocking like that at a lady's door. I wonder you didn't kick it in while you were doing it. It is a good thing the Herr Schaften are out.' Klutz felt really ill. He leaned on Delvig's arm and let himself be helped along, the energy gone out of him with the fury. "'You have never loved,' was all he said, wiping his eyes. Oh, "'That's it, is it? It is love that made you want to break the knocker. Why didn't you go round the back? Which of them is it? The cook, of course. <laughs> you look hungry. A candidate crying after a cook!' <laughs> and Delvig laughed, loud and long. "'The cook!' cried Klutz, galvanised by the word, into life. The cook! He thrust a shaking hand into his breast-pocket and dragged it out, the precious paper, unfolding it with trembling fingers and holding it before Delvig's eyes. So much for your cooks, he said, tremendously triumphant. They were in the road, out of sight of the house. Delvig took the paper and held it close to his eyes. What's this? he asked, scrutinising it. It is not German. "'It is English,' said Klutz. "'What's a governess?' Klutz merely pointed to the name at the end. "'Oh, the sweetness of that moment!' "'Anna?' read out Delvig. "'Anna, that is Miss Estcourt's name.' "'It is,' said Klutz, his tears all dried up. "'It seems to be poetry,' said Delvig, slowly. "'It is,' said Klutz. "'Why have you got it?' "'Why, indeed, it's mine. She sent it to me. She wrote it for me. These flowers. Miss Estcourt sent it to you. Poetry. To you?' Delvig looked up from the paper at Klutz and examined him slowly from head to foot, as if he had never seen him before. His expression, while he did it, was not flattering, but Klutz rarely noticed expressions. "'What's it all about?' he asked, when he had reached Klutz's boots, by which he seemed struck, for he looked at them twice. "'Love,' said Klutz proudly. "'Love.' "'Let me come home with you,' said Klutz eagerly. "'I'll translate it there. I can't hear where we might be disturbed.' "'Come on, then,' said Delvig, walking off at a great pace with the paper in his hand. Just as they were turning into the farmyard, the rattle of a carriage was heard coming down the road. "'Stop,' said Delvig, laying his hand on Klutz's arm. "'The Herrschaften have been drinking coffee in the woods. Here they are, coming home.' "'You can get a greeting if you wait.' They both stood on the edge of the road, and the carriage with Anna and a selection from her house-party drove by. Delvig and Klutz swept off their hats. When Anna saw Klutz she turned scarlet, undeniably, unmistakably scarlet, and looked away quickly. Delvig's lips shaped themselves into a whistle. "'Come in, then,' he said, glancing at Klutz. "'Come in, and translate your poem.' Seldom had Klutz passed more delicious moments than those in which he rendered Letty's verses into German, with both the Delvigs drinking in his words. The proud and exclusive Delvigs. A month ago such a thing would have been too wild a flight of fancy for the most ambitious dream. In the very room in which he had been thrust aside at parties, forgotten in corners, left behind when the others went into supper, 
he was now sitting the centre of interest with his former supercilious hosts hanging on his words when he had done had all too soon come to the end of his delightful task he looked round at them triumphantly and his triumph was immediately dashed out of him by delvig who said with his harshest laugh put aside all your hopes young man miss estcourt is engaged to herr von lohm engaged to herr von lohm klutz echoed stupidly his mouth open and the hand holding the verses dropping limply to his side engaged 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 delvig repeated in his loud sing-song not openly but all the same engaged it is truly scandalous cried his wife greatly excited and firmly believing that the verses were indeed anna's was she not herself of the race of weber and did she not therefore well know what they were capable of silence frau commanded delvig and she takes my flowers my daily offerings floral and poetical and she sends me these verses and all the time she is betrothed to some one else she is said delvig with another burst of laughter for klutz's face amused him intensely he got up and slapped him on the shoulder this is your first experience of weiber eh don't face your heartaches over her she is a young lady who likes to have her little joke and means no harm she is a person without shame cried his wife silence frau snapped delvig look here young man why what does he look like sitting there with all the wind knocked out of him get him a glass of brandy frau or we shall have him crying again sit up and be a man miss estcourt is not for you and never will be only a vicar could ever have dreamed she was and have been imposed upon by this poetry stuff but so you're a vicar you're a man eh? here drink this and tell us if you are not a man klutz feebly tried to push the glass away but delvig insisted klutz was pale to ghastliness and his eyes were brimming again with tears oh this person oh this englishwoman oh the shameful treatment of an estimable young man cried frau delvig staring at the havoc anna had wrought silence frau shouted delvig stamping his foot you can't be treated like this he went on to klutz who used to drinking much milk at the abstemious parsonage already felt the brandy running along his veins like liquid fire you can't be made ridiculous and do nothing a vicar can't fight but you must have some revenge klutz started revenge yes but what revenge he asked nothing to do with miss estcourt of course leave her alone leave her alone cried his wife what when she it is silence frau roared delvig leave her alone i say you won't gain anything there young man but go to her brautigam loom and tell him about it and show him the stuff he'll be interested delvig laughed boisterously and took two or three rapid turns up and down the room he had not lived with old joachim and seen much of old loom and the surrounding landowners without having learned something of their views on questions of honour axel loam he knew to be specially strict and straight-laced to possess in quite an unusual degree the ideals that delvig thought so absurd and so unpractical the ideals that is of a christian gentleman had he not known him since he was a child and he had always been a prig how would he like miss estcourt to be talked about as of course she would be talked about klutz's mouth could not be stopped and the whole district would know what had been going on axel loam could not and would not marry a young lady who wrote verses to vicars and if all relations between loam and kleinwalder ceased 
Why, then, life would resume its former pleasant course, he, Delvig, staying on at his post, becoming, as was natural, his mistress's sole adviser, and certainly after due persuasion achieving all he wanted, including the brick-kiln. The plainness and clearness of the future was beautiful. He walked up and down the room, making odd sounds of satisfaction, and silencing his wife with vigour every time she opened her lips. Even his wife, so quick as a rule of comprehension, had not grasped how this poem had changed their situation, and how it behoved them now not to abuse their mistress before a mischief-making young man. She was blinded, he knew, by her hatred of Miss Estcourt. Women were always the slaves, in defiance of their own interests, to some emotion or other. If it were not love, then it was hatred. Never could they wait for anything whatever. The passing passion must out and be indulged, however fatal the consequences might be. What a set they were! And the best of them! What fools! He glanced angrily at his wife as he passed her, but his glance, travelling from her to Klutz, who sat quite still with head sunk on his chest, legs straight out before him, the hand with the paper loosely held in it, hanging down out of the cuffless sleeve nearly to the floor, and vacant eyes staring into space, his good humour returned, and he gave another harsh laugh. "'Well,' he said, standing in front of this dejected figure, "'how long will you sit there? If I were you, I'd lose no time. You don't want those two to be making, laugh, and enjoying themselves an hour longer than is necessary, do you? With you out in the cold, with you so cruelly deceived, and made to look so ridiculous, I'd spoil that, if I were you, at once.' "'Yes, you are right. I'll go to Heaven Lom and see if I can have an interview.' Klutz got up with a great show of determination, put the paper in his pocket, and buttoned his coat over it for greater security. Then he hesitated. "'It is a shameful thing, isn't it?' he said, his eyes on Delvig's face. "'Shameful? It's downright cruel.' "'Shameful?' began his wife. "'Silence, I tell thee!' "'Young ladies' jokes are sometimes cruel, you see. I believe it was a joke, but a very heartless one.' and one that has made you look more foolish even than the half-fledged pastors of your age generally do look. It is only fair in return to spoil her game for her. Take another glass of brandy and go and do it. Klutz stared hard for a moment at Delvig. Then he seized the brandy, gulped it down, snatched up his hat, and taking no farewell notice of either husband or wife, hurried out of the room. They saw him pass beneath the window his hat over his eyes, his face white his ears aflame. "'There goes a fool,' said Delvig, rubbing his hands, "'and as useful a one as ever I saw. "'But here's another fool,' he added, turning sharply to his wife. "'And I don't want some in my own house.' And he proceeded to tell her, in the vigorous and convincing language of a justly irritated husband, what he thought of her. End of chapter 22